privilege it has been working with Christy Reynolds. Um, and I want to encourage you guys to come next week uh, to their farewell after the service. Um, just plan to be here. You know, we're going to have some refreshments, we're going to have some treats, but uh, we've been here for a long time, and they've put in a lot of um, love and energy, and I have seen the tears, I have seen the, um, the ministry that Christy has been and Kelly has been uh, to this church, and it's amazing to see how God's working in their lives and moving them. So I want to encourage you to plan to be there. And if you're tuning in online, get here next week, okay? Uh, because it's going to be a great time. It'll be a family moment. It'll be a moment for fellowship. So I want to encourage that for next week. Will you join with me as we pray before we dive into God's Word? Jesus, Lord, we're so grateful that we get to come to look at your Word. Lord, we ask for wisdom right now. And Lord, that your words would penetrate our hearts. Lord, that we would see you clearly. And Lord, I pray that if anything's from me, Lord, that it would be quickly forgotten, but what comes from your word will stand forever. Lord, we rejoice with the word when it says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God lasts forever. So Lord, teach us now about your truth. Lord, we come in humble submission to your truth. That your word is a double-edged sword and it knows us better than we know ourselves. It separates bone from marrow. So Lord, that sword we approach now. And Lord, help us as we look into it and see what it means for our lives. We ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. If you were to conduct a poll with a hundred different people and ask them all the same question, what is truth? You might get a hundred different answers, right? To some, what is truth might be a list of facts or trivia that you're just trying to get the right answer, just trying to fill the right thing. To others, it could be a subject reserved for the halls of academia. What is truth? That's too, that's too lofty for me. And it, it might seem like such a deep question one could imagine. I, they don't even know where to begin, right? The topic of truth is all over the place in our culture today. In 2001, NBA star for the Boston Celtics, Paul Pierce, gained the nickname The Truth by, an oppos- by the opposing big man, Shaquille O'Neal. After an unstoppable performance, the name stuck with Pierce for much of his career because of the, because of his, the unchanging factor he was every time he stepped on the court. Although, near the end of his career, he didn't keep that up as much. You may recall in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was post-truth, with, uh, which the definition is relating to or denoting circumstance, uh, denoting circumstance to which objective facts and less, are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief. You know, it's interesting. I see this definition of post-truth 
And it reminds me of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Abolition of Man, where he talks about men without chests, where uh, the decision-making faculties and the direction of lives uh, are made in the head off of facts and made out of the gut out of feeling. But the men without chests have no truth to root their decision-making. We live in a world that accepts this in the Oxford Dictionary as the word of the year and celebrates the idea of post-truth. This leads us to our increasingly relevant idea we're going to explore, prevailing truth. And today, which we're borrowing this idea from the pre-Reformation from John Huss, who was a Czech, which I love the Czech Republic, you know, like Chris Bailey, he's 80. I will talk about Czech with you for hours if you're up for it. Uh, but the pre-reformer John Huss uh, coined the, 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 the idea Pravda Vitezi. And Pravda Vitezi means the truth prevails. And it's so well remembered and it's held at a premium in Czech, it, it is on the presidential flag. So if you ever go to Prague and you go to Prague Castle where the president's office is, if that flag is up, that means that the president is in. If the flag is down, that means the president is out. But this is still on the Czech flag today. It's on the presidential flag. And, but a question that comes from this about Huss's life is, uh, how much did he believe in the prevailing truth of Christ? You know, you look at the life of John Huss, you look at the work of John Huss, and he lived in Prague a uh, hundred years before Martin Luther, so it was the early 1400s, and um, his, uh, his ministry started as he was in the Catholic seminary. He was the top dog in the Catholic seminary, and he started reading scripture, and he started growing from scripture. He started hearing the gospel in his heart, and it started, the truth of Scripture started changing his life, and he saw the difference between what he was reading and what he was seeing. And so he had to leave his position there. But at the height of Bethlehem Church in Prague, they had 8,000 people that would come to their services. Now, they had four services, they had 2,000 apiece, well, he could only fit 2,000 people in the room, but he was preaching in the vernacular of the people. And to the Roman Catholic Church, that was a big no-no. You only do in Latin. But he wanted the truth of Scripture to go to the people. He wanted them to hear the truth in their own language. And one of his other main tenets was that the Pope was not the head of the church. Jesus was the head of the church. And that was the solid foundation that the church was to be built on. That it was no man that was the foundation, but it was Christ that was the foundation. That is how much John Huss believed in the truth of Scripture. But if you turn with me uh, to John 18, that's where we're going to be this morning. In John 18, verses... Uh, 33 through 38, uh, shares a story. Um, but uh, 
Look there in your Bibles, and I, I hope you brought them this morning. I, I, I hope you're tuning in. I hope you're engaged in this. So turn with me to John 18 as we look to the word for wisdom and understanding regarding truth from the trial of Jesus. This is at the height of Holy Week. So we just uh, celebrated Easter a few weeks ago. And uh, in Easter, uh, this, is, this is a part of that, um, that time where it's at the height of Holy Week and Jesus is standing trial. And Jesus is, uh, he has six uh, magistrates or six leaders that he's standing before. And those six people, he is being condemned. This is the fourth of the six trials. The first three were, were religious heads and the second three, or, uh, the second three uh, were secular heads. And uh, this is the fourth of the six trials Jesus would face that day before he was crucified. Three from the Jewish authority and three from the secular authority. But all were unable to find fault rightly and, and justly uh, persecute him. But uh, still caving under pressure to sentence Jesus, we see how Pilate responds. So turn with me to John 18, verses 33 through 38, or you can read it on the screen. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do you say it, uh, or, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been, uh, have, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? You know, Pilate's question was not looking for an answer. He was not interested in learning uh, from Jesus about truth, but was asking a rhetorical question for, from his worldview of despair. He wasn't asking Jesus to give him the secret to what truth actually is. His worldview had no space for this. You know, in Roman culture, they saw this life as an um, illusion. This life is a simulation. Uh, if, if you see some of the Roman history uh, and philosophy, like Plato, you get a better understanding that uh, uh, with Plato's parable of the cave, where all of us are in the cave and all we see is shadows against a wall that's in front of us, and we don't actually know what's going on. That's the world that was going on during this time. But the irony of this moment was so great because the embodiment of truth 
was standing right before him. You know, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Much more powerful than Paul Pierce on the basketball court is the person who bears witness to the truth, as we see in verse 37. You know, Jesus is just responding about being a king, but he says, for this purpose, I was born. So, we're getting to the root. We're getting to why Jesus came in the first place. To bear witness to the truth. To speak the truth of the kingdom. To help people understand the truth. And Jesus gives a conditional response that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, it's important as we look at Jesus is... Uh, I'm sorry, it's important as we're looking at what Jesus has to say about bearing witness to the truth, we have to look at the broader picture of why Jesus came. So the first point is that truth prevails in the claims of Christ. We see in our text today a claim of Christ. that He says, I have come for this reason, to bear witness to the truth. But truth prevails in the claims of Christ. There are many claims of Christ that point to the truth of who He is. When looking at Jesus' claim to bear witness to, to the truth, it's important to look at the broader picture of the New Testament to see how this measures up to as other claims of divinity. So we're going to go through some of the other claims that Jesus makes about who He is. So Luke 19.10 says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. John twelve forty seven says, as for the person who hears my word but does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save it. First Timothy 1, 15 says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 1 John 3.5 says this, But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. Mark 1.38, Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. John 3.39, Jesus said, For judgment... I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. John 12, 46. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stray, should stay in darkness. Luke 5, 32. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Matthew 9.13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And there's more. I, I wonder where the slides keep on going because I cut off at some point. But yes, there we go. Mark 2.17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
I have come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. John 10.10, some of us may have this memorized. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I think that's where the slides run out. Yes, okay. And I have more. Hebrews 10, 7. Then I said, here am I. It is written about me on the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. We see a lot of examples. There's so many examples in the New Testament of why Jesus came. But all of this falls under the umbrella that he has come to attest to the truth. That Jesus is the truth. He's he's the truth in every one of those verses. He's the truth bringing salvation to those who believe. And I have lots of verses, but I'm not going to keep going with those. The truth prevails in the claims of Christ. Number two, truth prevails in reality. R.C. Sproul, a theologian, once said, Truth is defined as that which corresponds to reality as perceived by God. Because God's perception of reality is never distorted, it is a perfect perception of reality. So, truth is defined by which corresponds to reality. There's a a, a tie between truth and reality. If something is true, that's the definition of what is true. It is how it exists in reality. And who has the best view of what reality is? Truth prevails in reality. We live in a world that is fascinated by different realities that may or may not be rooted in its own. Some of these philosophies or moral realities, some of these are fantasies like the multiverse seen in superhero movies. You know, a lot of people are interested in the idea of having different realities, living in different avatars, experiencing the world in different ways and being a part of a different reality. But we also see the shift in defining reality in the universe. Um, the issue is not that the concept of truth is denied. Rather, the issue is that the concept of truth has been hijacked and has been redefined. Specifically, our culture has embraced the notion that truth is defined by secular humanism. The essence of secular humanism can be defined as follows. Secularism is the approach to truth which asserts that the nature of the world, uh, the nature, the natural world, let me start over. <laughs> Secularism is the, is the approach to truth which asserts that the natural world is the extent of what can be studied, known, and perceived as reality. So if you can fit it into a test tube, if you can study it, then that's how we know something is real, according to secularism. Secularism contends that the supernatural realm, if it exists, is not part of our world and is thus beyond the scope of truth. The sacred must be distinguished from the secular. 
There's a division that takes place in secular humanism. Reality and truth belong to the domain of the secular. Faith, myth, and superstition belong to the realm of the sacred. Consequently, secularism defines reality in a way that is unacceptable to any transcendent supernatural authority. Truth is known apart from any belief in or or accountability to God. In the void left by denying that God has the sole authority to determine reality and truth, secularism combines uh, with humanism the belief that man is the measure of all things to ascribe that authority for defining reality to man. So therefore, truth from a secular humanist standpoint is therefore subjective. It is wholly dependent upon man as the one who perceives and studies and determines reality. I thought about this during the week as I couldn't help but notice. Has anybody noticed the, the, the sand piles out back and the giant things that, that are happening? Uh, it looks like something's being built next to the church, right? And, uh, you know, I was thinking about that in terms of the construction that's taking place. There's a philosophy that goes into that construction, right? There is a philosophical framework that the architects are going to use. Right now, they're making sand piles. They are working on what? Does anybody have a word for it? The foundation. I heard it over here somewhere. They're working on the foundation. If this were a postmodern building, using postmodern philosophies, uh, there, there, there is such a thing as considered postmodern architecture. But... It is not genuinely postmodern architecture. If you go and visit those places, you will enter through a door, right? You will go to a building that has a foundation. It will not be much of architecture if it is postmodern. Yes, you can have a stairwell that goes nowhere, but that stairwell has to be tied to something. There are laws, there are rules that go into making a stairwell that is functional. So from a postmodern idea, uh, it can easily work out spaces. It can easily work on spaces like an art canvas. Has anybody seen postmodern art before? Maybe at the Minneapolis Institute of Art or other places like the Walker. But when it comes to reality, when it comes to something that is dependent on something else, we need to build our lives on something. We cannot build our lives on postmodern ideas. They struggle to bridge the gap to reality when they have to operate effectively. You can have, an, you can have aspects of postmodernism in your architecture, but it has to be grounded in something. So point number two comes down to this. Who gets to decide ultimate reality? Is it something that I invent? Is it something that I determine? Or is it something that has always existed and I come to discover? You know, it's interesting, when we study theology, when you study biblical theology and systematic theology, which is 
just two different ways. Biblical theology is looking at the timeline. So we look at the timeline of Scripture and how it all works together. Systematic theology is connecting the dots between Scripture. When we look at those things, there is revelation, how God has revealed himself. God has revealed himself in nature. We can see how God works through nature. It's natural revolution, or revelation. And then there is special revelation, where God speaks, God connects, God sends someone, God sends Christ. You know, one of my favorite uh, philosophical poems is uh, about the search for God, where uh, it describes these men that are touching an elephant, and they're all blind. And they're touching an elephant, and they are, one touches the leg, and he's like, oh, it's a tree trunk. And then another has the tail, and he's like, oh, no, this is a whip. Yeah, right? And there's another one that hits the side of the elephant and says, oh, this is a wall. It's definitely a wall. And then another one touch, touches the tusk. He says, oh, it's a spear. It t- and, and, and the whole poem is about the mystery about discovering God. But that whole poem breaks down if the elephant were to speak. If the elephant were to say, I am an elephant, there is no more mystery at that point. We know that it's an elephant. We know what it is because it has told us what it is. I mean, that's a talking elephant, so you might have to, you might have to caution yourself with a talking elephant. But as soon as that elephant speaks, we know what it is. doesn't matter how blind we are. This is the same thing about reality and how we, dis- we learn who we are by how God has revealed himself. And so many movements today center around the idea of I get to choose how the world gets to work. And it's a pretty privileged way of looking at the world and it ultimately breaks down over time. Is it something that I invent and determine or is it something that I explore and discover as it is revealed to me? And the truth is, behind every scientific invention, do you think it was there before somebody discovered it? Yes. The truth is, behind every planet, everything that we discover in the cosmos, it was there before it was discovered. And we have the privilege to operate in God's world and find out more about Him. That leads us to our third point, is that truth prevails with integrity. You think about that moment where Jesus is standing before before Pilate. If you're standing before someone, like a judge, that had, okay, it's your fourth judge of the day, and they have the power to sentence you to death, and they have the power to set you free, would you approach that person with fear? I know I would. I might shake a little bit. I might have a little, you know, every time I talk to a police officer, I call him sir, and i like, ooh, okay, all right. Got a little quiver in my voice. Appreciate you. Um, but they have the power to determine your destiny. It's the same thing. Uh, but but I, I think about Jesus. He did not have any fear of man. 
You know, we look at the timeline where Jesus, you know, has the integrity where he knew what was true and he knew who to be afraid of. Where was Jesus the most afraid during Holy Week? While he was praying in the garden. While he was talking to his father and he said, if there is any way that this cup should pass, let it be so. And Jesus knew what was ahead of him, but he had the fear of the Lord as he was in that moment. And when he stood before Pilate, he was unafraid. Where just the night before he was weeping and sweating blood in the garden. We see who Jesus feared and who he was bold before. He knew who God was and the authority of the Father, while at the same time he knew that any authority Pilate had was given to him by God for the good of the population. That all the authority that Pilate had to give him death and give him life, that was granted to him by God. And so Jesus had no fear before him. You know, and we think about John Huss as well. His death, he was burned at the stake. And they burned him, they actually, he was burned at the stake in Germany because if they would have done it in, in Prague, there would have been an uprising. There was the Thirty Years' War where there was an uprising anyway. But it would have been a lot more ugly, I guess. But they burned him at the stake. And John Huss, before the Catholic Church, approached that moment knowing that the truth of God was better than any truth that somebody might be telling him there. And them telling him to recant. But he couldn't because he had such a profound truth encounter with the God of the Bible that he did not fear any man. And the same goes for Martin Luther. If you know the connection between Martin Luther and John Huss, John Huss was burned at the stake in Germany at the same location where Martin Luther was ordained 100 years later. You may have heard the phrase, your goose is cooked. Husa in Czech means goose. And so he was burned at the stake. Um, so his goose was cooked. But the legend says that when, that, that when he was um, going to die, he said, you may have cooked this goose. You may have silenced me, but later will come that you will not be able to silence. And Martin Luther this is the quote from Martin Luther. Unless I am convinced by Scripture in plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they have uh, contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. And that was a spark to the Reformation. That was the start of the, the, the church coming back to truth. Many have lost integrity.
You know, it's interesting, Martin Luther and John Huss stood for something. And some of the Reformers and some of the Puritans fought for those things and set, set things up. But just a couple weeks ago, we see in the Church of Scotland, they have departed from the truth. The Church of Scotland has changed their rules on what they believe is true about mankind. And we see other denominations that are following suit and doing the same thing of compromising on truth. Many have lost integrity. But I want to share with you a quote from Francis Schaeffer that gets right to the heart of this. Here is the great evangelical disaster. The failure of evangelical world to stand for truth as truth. There is only one word for this, accommodation. The evangelical church has accommodated to the world, uh, the world spirit of the age. Truth carries with it confrontation. Truth demands confrontation. Loving confrontation, but con- confrontation nonetheless. If our reflex action is always accommodation, regardless of centrality of the truth involved, there is something wrong. And I think Francis Schaeffer gets, gets it right. That we cannot fall by the wayside with accommodation. Many times pastors, many times denominations will change their theology to accommodate somebody in their life. I think that comes about because they truly don't want to lose that person. But I want to tell you today, it is possible to love someone and disagree with them. It is possible to serve someone with the love of Christ and disagree with them. You know, many have lost this integrity. And I want to share with you a a brief uh, tidbit from uh, the State of Theology, a 2020 study from Lingonier Ministries. They confirmed uh, that the situation is not improving. In response to the statement, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 54% of those that were asked from America, responded to the affirmative. 54% of the people that claim to be Christians said that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and is not about objective truth. How wild is that? Indeed, in response to the all-important question, what is truth, most today consider it to be a synonym for preference. It is what one prefers. It is what one feels. It is private, personal, ever-changing, socially constructed, never certain, and definitely not determined by a higher authority. David Wells describes this prevailing perspective well when he writes, Truth is now simply a matter of etiquette. It has no authority, no sense of rightness, because it is no longer anchored in anything absolute. If it persuades, it does uh, does so only because our experience has given it, it its persuasive power. But tomorrow our experience might be different. 
That's from his book, God in the Wasteland. But I want to close with a quote from John Huss. John Huss said this about truth. He said, seek the truth, hear the truth, learn the truth, love the truth, speak the truth, hold the truth, and defend the truth until death. That's what I want to call us to today. I want to ask you this question. Faithful Christian, are you seeking the truth? Are we really seeking the truth in our lives, in our families? Are we seeking and are we finding truth? Hear the truth. Are you listening for what is true? Are you gravitating towards things that are true? And when something is an affront to Scripture, when something is an affront to God's design, are we resistant to those things? Do we hear the truth? Are our ears open to the truth? He says, learn the truth. Are we growing in our understanding? Are we spending time? I love how Darren shares straight out of his devotionals. I know Darren's learning the truth because he's sharing from it. It's something that's real. It's something that's right in front of you. Are we learning the truth? Are you a student of the Bible? Are you a student of God's Word? Are we growing in that? Is it something that we gravitate towards? Are, are we feeding ourselves spiritually? Or are we starving spiritually? Learn the truth. The next one, love the truth. Does it affect your heart? Is it something that is just feeling like C.S. Lewis, Men Without Chess? Is it just a feeling or is it just a head knowledge? Or do you have a chest? Do you have a truth ground? Do you love the truth? Does your heart love the truth? Speak the truth. Are we speaking the truth to one another? Are we speaking the truth that needs to be heard? Are we speaking out in areas? You know, it's interesting. I also, I also understand looking at how Jesus sat before Pilate, he was not disrespectful. He was not, <laughs> he was not coming down on Pilate, telling him how things are going to be. But he spoke the truth. He spoke the truth. Are we speaking the truth? The last one, well, second to last, hold the truth. Are we clinging to the truth as our foundation? I want you guys, when you see the pile of dirt behind us, think about the foundation that we have in Christ. Think about clinging to that foundation. Think about the foundation that we need to build our lives on. We need to build our lives on the truth of Christ. Are we holding to that foundation? Are we clinging to the rock of our salvation? The last one is defend truth until death. We see John Huss, we see Martin Luther. You know, there's certain things that we hold as a church with open hands, right? Some people might have different opinions on tongues. 
Some people might have different opinions on different spiritual gifts. But the things that we cling to is, I will die for the deity of Jesus Christ. Do you actually believe that? I will die for the deity of Jesus Christ. I know, on this hand, with open-handed things, I, I don't know if I'll suffer a paper cut for my, for, for, for my view of um, eschatology. I might suffer a little bit. But I will die for the deity of Jesus Christ. This is worth committing my life to. I have found truth with a capital T, and I don't need any other truth. I want to encourage you with that this morning. Defend the truth until death. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we thank you for your word that is truth. Lord, as we see Jesus before Pilate, Lord, help us to have that same foundation of knowing who we are, being rooted in our identity in who you are. And Lord, we ask for your strength to rise up and to be strong under the pressure of this evil age. And Lord, we ask for your help by your Spirit to be able to discern truth from error in the people that we encounter. Help us to be the love of Christ as we go out from here and as we consider what you have for us. Lord, we thank you for being the truth. That it's not a list of rules that we're following, but that we have a truth embodied in a person, and that is you, Lord. So Lord, help us as we pursue truth in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.